This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. For our guests, we're in a series uh, titled Freedom from Religion. This is our fifth week that we're in uh, this series, and our fourth week right here in Matthew chapter 9. So we'll be reading from that in just a few moments. Hope you have your outline there and you'll be able to follow and take some notes uh, this morning as we talk about God's box being bigger than me. Religion, if you're taking notes, this is your first point. Religion is always me-centered. Always me-centered. That's one of the ways you can tell that it's religion that's not Christianity. Even those who, because of their religion, give their lives to serve the poor and serve the suffering in this world. If they do it purely for religious means, they're doing it out of a selfish motivation, to be real honest, if you talk to them, because they're trying to do something that's going to catch God's attention. They're trying to do something that's going to to elevate their status with God. They're trying to do something that says, God, look at me, look what I'm sacrificing, look what I'm doing, look what I'm serving, look how I'm taking care of other people, and I'm doing so, God, hoping that when I die, you'll say, come on in and join me in heaven. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm doing this because I want to go to heaven? People do. That's religion, however. It's always me-centered. Christianity is different. Let me explain the difference. Christianity is always Christ-centered. Now, that's not to say that Christians don't do good things, that we don't serve the, the, uh, the hurting and, 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 and deal with injustice and help the suffering and feed the hungry. and do the, We should be doing those things because the Bible tells us to do those things. The difference is that when a Christian does those things, our motive only ought to be for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that's to give Jesus Christ glory. We don't do good works in order to improve our hopes for eternity. That's not why we're into that. We do them to glorify God the Father, God the Son. But how often do I find myself, and I'll just confession time this morning, and maybe you you can say, yeah, Rick, I know what you're talking about. How often do I find myself wondering as I'm doing something out in the community maybe, or maybe even right here at church, but but out and about serving in some way, how often do I find myself asking this question, not aloud, of course, but in my own mind, I wonder what they think of me now. wonder what their impression is of me now. You know, I hope they think I'm a good guy, and I become me-centered, and it no longer becomes Christ-centered. I really ought to be asking, gee, I hope this points them to Jesus. I hope they see how wonderful he is by what I'm doing here today. I'm doing this for him. In fact, Jesus Jesus told uh, the believers, you know, his disciples there in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, when, when, you, um, when you find yourself doing something for other, and to get other people's attention and to get other people's admiration. When you, when you, he said, when you, when you give your alms to the poor, as the example that he used, and you're doing it so that other people will notice you and other people will look and say, what a fine man, what a fine woman you are. He said, right then and there, he said, you've gotten your reward. Their attention, their admiration is the only reward you'll get. God doesn't even count that for anything. So we glorify God by what we do. Christianity is always Christ-centered. 
The Pharisees, and Jesus is again dealing with them in this chapter, story after story after story. If you know the Pharisees, we've talked about them over the last weeks. They were the movers and shakers in establishing and policing Jewish religious traditions. They were the guys in control. They enjoyed the adulation of the people uh, for things like their holy appearance. They'd walk by and people would just look at them and say, look how they're dressed. They're dressed in really holy fashion today. You know, they, they look like holy men and, and would admire them for, their, for the way they, they dress and the way they looked. Their pride as Pharisees revolved around their strict adherence to the laws and traditions of the elders. They believed that they had, they had the corner on the religious thing. They had the religious thing down better than anyone else. And they controlled the synagogues, the places where the Jewish people went on the Sabbath day, on Saturdays to to hear the scriptures read and to hear the rabbis teach. And they controlled what was happening there. And so in their minds, and in the minds of most of the people, if the Pharisees put their approval on someone, that meant that person was legitimate. That person was the real deal. That person was acceptable in the Jewish religion. But if they were critical of someone, as they have been of Jesus in these stories in Matthew chapter 9, if they were condemning of someone, as they typically were of everybody that wasn't like, like them, that person was not to be listened to. That person was phony. Now, here's another story here in Matthew 9 where most the most religious people, the Pharisees, found reason to criticize Jesus. Not only did they this time go beyond calling Jesus a phony. In the other stories, they've doubted him, they've questioned him, they've argued with him. Now they're going to go beyond calling him a phony, and they're going to attribute his miraculous abilities to Satan. They're going to say, you can do this because Satan empowers you. And because Jesus wouldn't accept their oral traditions as God's word, they had all these traditions that they they banked on and they counted on, but they weren't found in scripture. They weren't from the Old Testament. They were made up. And Jesus said, I'm not getting into the made up stuff. And because he wouldn't accept their oral traditions as God's word, they saw Jesus as the enemy of God. Now, question for you to answer out loud. Easy answer. You ought to be able to get this. If you ever went to Sunday school, you know the answer to this question. Who is the enemy of God? Satan is, right? The devil. You know, we know that there's God and there's the devil. There's Satan. And so they're going to charge Jesus with having satanic powers to do miracles. In fact, they tried so hard to discredit Jesus that they said, hey, you know, when you're casting out demons, you're doing it by the power of Satan. Verse 32, Matthew chapter 9. And they went out and behold, they brought to him I'm not sure who they is, whether it's disciples, whether it's the people in town, whether it might even have been the Pharisees. I don't know. It says, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the implication is Jesus cast the demon out of this man. When the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. This man was able to speak. And the multitude marveled. Everybody, the crowd that was gathered around, marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. We've never seen anything like this ever happen before. This is a first. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, this time in this story, 
Matthew doesn't record that Jesus gave them any kind of response to that. They said that, and it doesn't say, and Jesus turned and said this to them, or Jesus asked them this question as he's done in previous stories when he's asked them questions, when he said, hey, you know, I can read your minds, guys. I know what you're thinking. He never went there in this story, but later he would. A very similar story, a little bit different, but very similar. Look in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, another demon-possessed person, blind and mute. Not only was this person unable to speak, this person was unable to see. And Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, this is the crowd, not the Pharisees, but the crowd around said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, heard what? Heard the crowd saying, oh, this might be the son of David. The Pharisees said, speaking of Jesus, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now Jesus is going to give a response because it says in verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who's not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. This miracle of this man who was blind and mute being able to see and speak so captivated the people's minds, it really got them thinking. Now they've heard, no doubt, of other things that Jesus has done. Now many of them maybe for the first time are seeing it for themselves. And they begin to wonder out loud, could this be? The son of David. Who's the son of David? The son of David is a term for the Messiah. Messiah, the king that God would send to Israel, would be in the lineage of David, would be a descendant of David. And they are looking for another to take the throne of David that had been their ancient history, their ancient heritage. Is he the Messiah? Well, the Pharisees, there's no way they're going to accept that. And so they're going to try to silence that kind of thing very quickly. So they accuse Jesus. No, he's not the son of David. He does this by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a name for the prince of demons. Well, when they accused him of that, he said, "Mm, I got to give an answer this time. I can't just let this slide. Not again. And so he responded back. And in essence, he said, hey, listen for a second. Listen to what you're saying. Would you listen to yourselves Anybody ever, ever had anybody say that to you? Would you just listen for a moment to what you're saying? Think about it for a moment. Listen to what you're saying. First, you're saying, I'm casting out Satan by Satan's power. That only can mean that Satan, you're saying Satan is working against himself. That's dumb, all right? That doesn't happen. Satan's working against himself. Don't think so. Do you really believe that? That's not very smart. Then he says to them in verse 27, he talks about, well, if I'm casting out 
demons by the power of Satan, then who are your sons casting demons out? By what power are they using? When he says your sons, in Judaism, they had a a group of people uh, back in those days who practiced exorcism. And that's what they did was they went around and cast out demons. And he said, so if I'm casting out demons by Satan's power, what are you saying about your own exorcists? Whose power are they using? If I'm doing it by Satan's power, maybe they are as well. Now this story, both of these stories, reveal some things to us this morning about religion and how to tell if we're being caught up in a critical religious spirit. Again, we go back to the very first Sunday in this series. And so as we talk about religion in this series, we're not talking about something good. We're talking about something man-made. We're something, talking about something that is uh, the opposite of what biblical Christianity is. So what is this telling us? Write these things down. Jot these down. To the religious, number one, personal experience trumps what God may be doing. To the religious, what matters is what I've experienced. We tend to judge everything by our own experiences. For example, if you ask Gail, what what is the greatest coconut pie in all the world? Who has the greatest coconut pie in all the world? Her answer would be the Black Pelican Restaurant, okay? She would tell you just right off, Black Pelican Restaurant, greatest coconut pie in all the world. Have anybody ever eaten their coconut pie? All right. Man, yes. Well, Scott, Scott works there. <laughs> it is fantastic, is it not? It is wonderful. It is amazing. But when you say, you know, that you're, you know, that whatever your favorite dessert is, is the best in all the world, what you're really saying really is this. It's the best pie I've ever eaten. Isn't that what you're saying? When you say it's the best in the whole world, because there's nobody in this room that's eaten every piece of coconut pie in the whole world. How can you really say that? You're saying, in my experience, it is the very best I've ever had. So your standard becomes your own experience. And you'll convince yourself it's the best. You'll even convince yourself there's no way it could be ever better, be any better anywhere else. In fact, if someone else suggests, but, hey, but, but wait a second, I know of another place that has coconut pie that's even better than this. You go, oh, there's no way. You're nuts. Can't possibly be. This is the best. There's no way it could be better than this. Why? Because you've never eaten that other pie. It's not in your experience. So because it's out of your box, you just don't want to hear it. You don't believe it. Jesus was doing here things that no man had ever been seen doing before. And and their experience. Now, the the Pharisees were witnessing real miracles. Have there there been miracles, by the way? Were there ever miracles done in the Old Testament? Yeah, sure. There was a sea that got parted. There was an axe head that floated. There was a man that was leprous and went into the Jordan River and dipped down into the river and came out clean. There were were a a number of miracles in the Old Testament in their scriptures. But those were all to them in Israel's ancient past. And now in their present, before their their very eyes, Jesus is healing and Jesus is casting out demons and Jesus is turning water into wine. When religion, here's what happens. When religion is based upon experiences, it becomes subjectively true to me. 
Did you get that? When it's only based upon what I've experienced, it becomes true, but it's true in a subjective way. And that, that's something, well, I, I just know it's true. I feel it's true. I believe it's true because I've seen it because I've experienced it. So, so it must be true. When I judge everything by my experiences, only what I've experienced can be real. And that means I'll only accept what I've seen. I'll only accept what I've touched. I'll only accept what I've felt is something worthy of believing. It's like taking a little child, like my little two-year-old granddaughter, and I try, sit down at the dinner table, and there's stuff that we have to eat. And I know she'll like it if she'll try it. But she'll look at it, and she'll say, nope, that, nothing like that has ever passed my lips and if I have anything to say about it, it never will. You know, and that's how a two-year-old thinks. But I know some adults like that, by the way, don't you? You know, I mean, they won't try anything different. I think, good night, man, what is wrong? This is good stuff. But because it looks, it's, it, because it's green, you know, some people won't eat anything green. They won't try it. They're missing out on marvelous things. That's because they're basing everything on their experience. The religious ones are the ones who sing the, the Baptist theme song. Now, how many Baptists are here this morning? Would you raise your hand? You're, you're not, if you're a member of this church, you're a Baptist. Raise your hand, okay? I'm sorry to tell you that, but if you, but if you are. I know some of you say, I don't want to say that. I'm, the Baptist theme, you know what the Baptist theme is? We've never done it that way before. That's what the religious crowd says. It's what the Pharisees were expressing. So really, our, the Pharisees were, for us Baptists, they were our forefathers, you know, in this kind of way of thinking. What's telling is that these Pharisees seem to ignore the Old Testament prophets who told them that a shepherd would come, who was going to come and he was going to heal the sick and he was going to bind the broken. And those Old Testament prophets foretold of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David who would come. But the Pharisees, because Jesus wasn't one of them, because he didn't fit in their box, were blinded to who he was. And we'll have, especially in the summertime, we'll have a lot of folks visit Nags Head Church for the very first time. Usually they're on vacation and they're you know, they've been, you know, I'm, I'm always impressed with people who go to church when they're on vacation. I think, how, how great is that? You know, most people are not going to do that. But the people that go to church on vacation, I mean, they're serious about going to church. And so we'll have folks who will come sometimes who are on vacation and visit us for the first time. And, and maybe they, they're from a church in our same denomination. They may believe theologically the exact same doctrines as us. But as soon as they come in through, through the front door, they begin to wonder. I don't know, maybe it's the coffee. Maybe it's the laughter in the lobby as people spend time together because maybe they've never been to a church where people laugh inside the walls of the church. Maybe it's as they come into this room. Maybe it's the black walls. What's up with the black walls? I remember when we painted this building and one of the painters, an old guy working for the painter, and we said, okay, now this part here is all black. And it was like, we might as well set, you know, Satan up here on the stage, you know, where it's, it's all black. And he just kind of, he, he said, you got to be kidding me. In a church, it's going to be black. Maybe it's the black. Maybe it's for some people, they come and they look and there's, there's an electric guitar back here. 
And we know that Satan possesses those. So, you know, I, I'm, and for a lot of people, maybe it's because the preacher isn't wearing a suit. I don't know. I remember one couple that left us upset. And, and they let me know that they were upset. And they told me the reason they were upset was because they called our worship service. They said it was like MTV. Because we had shown a video, kind of like we showed earlier this today. We showed a video, and we put stuff up on the screen, and it said, it's like MTV. And I said, I would have no idea, because I don't watch MTV. But that's what they said about it. It was so different out of the box for them. And that something happens here for a lot of folks that's totally out of their previous religious experience, and they turn around and leave, and sometimes they leave with a critical comment, because we're out of their experience. We're out of their box. Secondly, to the religious, tradition has equal or greater value than the Bible. Value. What do you value most? History shows that as time distances us, here we are in 2011. As time distances us now almost 2,000 years from the, from the beginning, from the very first of our faith, and that in our case that would be from Jesus and the disciples, as we distance ourselves in time from those days, we tend historically to add things to our beliefs. We tend to add traditions to our worship that over time will become sacred in and of themselves. Uh, I preached in the church last Sunday. Good church, preaching a church last Sunday where every Sunday, you know, if they don't, after the offering, if they don't stand and sing the doxology, they haven't been to church, you know? And, and that's just, they do it every week. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what, what if I said to the pastor last week, well, hey, we're not going to do the doxology this week. Oh, he would have said, no, 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 you don't understand. If we don't sing that song, I'm going to hear about it. And, and, and it's going to be a bad, bad thing if we don't do that. It be, traditions can become sacred in and of themselves. And then when someone calls us, simply calls us back, as Jesus would do, to the basics, to the scriptures, our tradition can pull us away from the simplicity of God's word. Let me give you this illustration. I remember when we had um, one of the transitions here that we had in our church, at Nagsa Church, and how our church makes decisions. This is, we're going back now to 1994. A few of you were here in those days. And one of those changes that we did in that transition was we did away with something called, in our decision-making, something called Robert's Rules of Order. How many of you are familiar with Robert's Rules of Order? If you're a Baptist or have been a Baptist for very long, chances are you are. Parliamentary Procedure. Robert's rules of order. Decisions require a vote, but before there can be a vote, there must be a second, a motion and a second, which can be amended requiring a second and separate vote before you get back to the original motion, which can be tabled and not voted upon at all. And that's traditionally how most Baptist churches make decisions. Well, we said, hey, you know what? We we broke out the Strong's Concordance and we've looked everywhere through the Bible and we cannot find the word Robert anywhere in there. It's not found in Scripture. We don't find any seconds and we don't find any motions and we don't find tabling this or doing that. We just can't find it in the Scripture. In fact, it seems political and it seems divisive to require votes for everything and motions, etc. So we're doing away with that. And we're going to be much simpler when it comes to conducting our church's business. Well, guess what happened? I got a phone call the next week from one of the ladies in the church, and she was crying on the phone, in tears. And she said to me, what 
have you done to our church? And I said, I don't know what she's talking about. I said, well, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, you're doing away with Robert's rules. You see, it didn't matter that in the Bible, churches were led by the Holy Spirit and depended on him. It didn't matter that somehow churches, somehow for, for the first 1,800 years of Christianity, before General, General uh, uh, Henry Robert wrote his rules in 1876, it didn't matter that up to that point, somehow churches found a way to get things done to her. It didn't matter that you can't find a vote in the New Testament church. What mattered to her was that tradition was more valuable than the Bible. And that was religion. Number three, to the religious, when it never fits my experience or my tradition, I will brand it as evil. If it doesn't fit my tradition, doesn't fit my experience, I'll just call it evil. After all, if I'm not part of it, either I'm wrong or it's wrong, and I know I'm not wrong. So it must be evil. No one wants to admit they're wrong. Not me. Especially when you have these firmly held traditions. So how do you know, Rick, when something's right? How do you know that a belief or a movement is out in left field? You know, a couple weeks ago, it was in the news, still in the news. A Baptist pastor got blasted in the media and by the religion of political correctness, because he made a statement that said, Mormonism is not Christianity, Mormonism is a false cult. Man, everybody jumped all over that guy. Well, how was what he said different from what the Pharisees were saying about Jesus? That's what they were saying about him. You're cultic, man. This isn't the real deal. Let me give you some principles here about being free from religion to help you understand the difference between what the Pharisees were doing and what we ought to be today. When I'm free from religion, number one, I understand that God is bigger than my little world. The Bible tells us God's infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's eternal. The Bible tells me that I am not infinite. I'm finite. Isaiah wrote and said that God's ways are higher than mine, In other words, that means there are things that God does and things that God is that I cannot in my mind comprehend. Does that bother you that you can't understand everything about God? No, not really because that's who he is. If I understood everything about God, then he's not much of a God. There must be some mystery there to him. There must be some things that are beyond my understanding. That's who God is. That doesn't mean I can't know him. Doesn't mean I can't know his will. Doesn't mean I can't have a firm grasp on what's true and what's false. But I know God limits himself only, for example, to doing what is righteous and what is just. I know he has declared Jesus, his son, as the only way to heaven. I know that not everything that claims to be Christian or of God is. But I'm learning as I grow older and, and I'm, uh, I'm one of these people that I'm 56 years old. I have already lived longer up to this point than I will live in the future. You know what I mean? If I live as long now as I've already lived, I'll live to be 112, and you don't want to see that. Okay? That would not be a pretty picture. 
I've already lived most of my existence, and, and as I grow older, one thing that I learn about, about him and about how he works is I can't know everything about him. That means I haven't experienced everything that God can do. That must also mean that I, I need to be careful not to condemn something just because it's out of my personal box because it may not be out of his. Now stay with me because somebody said after the last gathering, so tell me again what that Baptist pastor said. Did you agree with him or disagree with him? I'm going to explain that right now. So you need to listen, but you need to listen very carefully because when I'm free from religion, number two, I will evaluate everything by the standard of God's word. I'll evaluate everything by God's word. Look with me at this verse in 2 Timothy 2.15. In fact, say it with me. It's up on the screen. Let's read it together. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's break that down. First, be diligent. That means this. I'll be a student of the Bible. If I'm going to evaluate everything by the standard of God's word, it just only makes sense. I need to know what God's word says. To know what God's word says, I need to be a student. I need to be diligent. And that that word means to put forth, to exert some effort. If I'm going to be a student of the Bible, it takes hard work. You don't learn the Bible by putting the Bible under your pillow at night and hoping that some of it seeps through into your brain as you sleep. It doesn't work that way. Let me also say that you're not a student of the Bible. If your only intake of scripture throughout the week is what you get here on Sunday morning, you need to be diligent. You need to exert some effort. Be a student of the Bible. Secondly, it says you skip down to the last part of the verse, and it calls the Bible the word of truth. That means this. I'll accept the Bible as God's definitive word of truth. I'll accept it. Why? It always speaks truth. As God's word, it must be perfect and trustworthy. If it's God's word, there cannot be anything wrong with it. If there's anything wrong with it and God gave it, what does that say about God? He made a mistake somewhere. And if God made a mistake somewhere, what kind of a God is he? How can I trust him with anything else? I can't. So it's God's word. I must accept it as perfect and trustworthy. It must be my standard for living. Parents, it must be your teenager's standard for living, your children's standard for living, and you've got to help guide them in that. Not the current trends, not the opinions of the popular. I'll accept it. Thirdly, the Bible is, that verse says, to be rightly divided. That means I'll learn to accurately interpret the Bible. Rightly divide means to cut it straight is what the language means there. How many guys, this happens to me, I think it happens to men more so than women. Uh, But Thanksgiving is coming up, and in my house, um, my household, um, you you have never and probably never, I hope not, Lord, ever see me bake a turkey, cook a turkey in the oven. Now, I've done one before in a smoker outside. I like fire, and if it's in a smoker outside or on a grill, I can cook it. All right. If it's in, in the house in an oven or in a stovetop, you really don't want me messing with it at all. So in our house, Thanksgiving dinner is, Gail is the one that handles all that stuff. And she does a marvelous job. And she does this great turkey. And I remember one of the very first times she baked this turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. And she pulls it out of the oven. And then she looks at me, the man. We like knives. And she says to me, the man, okay, cut the turkey. Carve that bird. I didn't have a clue. 
You know, you grab the leg and you hack it off and grab the other leg. Then you look at what's left and you go, where do I start? How do I, I had no idea how to carve a turkey until one year. I don't remember what year this was, but one year, up early in the morning, the week of Thanksgiving, turn on the TV, watching the Today Show. It's either Wednesday or Tuesday, something like that. And on the Today Show, they had that day the answer to all of my needs. They had a chef. And he said, today I'm going to teach you how to carve a turkey. Man, I got my notepad out. You know, and I'm watching this guy, and you do this, and then you do that, and then you do, and he told me how to carve that bird. And then on Thanksgiving Day, that later that week, Gail pulled the, oven, the turkey out of the oven, set it up on the counter, and said, Rick, carve the turkey. And I said, I'm all ready. I was confident. And I did step by step what this guy on TV told me to do, and, I, and it came out. It wasn't a mess. Before, it always been a, you know, looked like somebody had already eaten it almost, you know, as it was on the plate. Now it's all sliced up nice, and on either end of, was a leg on either end, and had separate the white meat from the dark meat, and it was, it was a beautiful presentation. Why? Somebody had taught me how to cut that bird right, how to carve that turkey. You know how to cut the Word of God? You know how to open up the Scripture and get it out and, and carve it up and, and, and make it so that it's edible and it's understandable and you know how to accurately interpret and understand it, that should be your goal as a student of the Bible. Some of you are taking Sam's class on Sunday evenings right now and he's teaching you that very thing. Number three, when I'm free from religion, I'll be a kingdom citizen. I'll be a kingdom citizen. Kingdom means it's very broad when we think of kingdom. Broader than even the local church. Did you know that there are other Christians in this world outside of this room today? Did you know that? Besides the people who have come to Nags Head Church, there are people in this world who are believers in Jesus Christ who didn't show up here today. There are. In fact, I have some friends in ministry who believe some things differently, differently than I believe on some issues. And they're my friends. And, and those friends and I, we agree about who Jesus is. We agree about what it means to trust him for eternal life. And that's important because he's the center of it all. And because of that, shared belief that life in Christ is found simply by faith in Christ alone, I can fellowship with and cooperate with those friends in the common cause of reaching this world with the gospel. Even though we don't agree on everything, we believe on what really matters. They believe in the gospel. The same gospel that I believe comes from the word of God, and that's what matters most. And we have some differences, however, and and I think that's okay. We're all part of the kingdom of God, and, and that's okay. It's why we, frankly, it's why we have different churches. It would be very easy, however, to say to those other pastors, hey, you know what? You believe in Jesus like I do. You believe, in the, you believe the Bible is the word of God, but you believe you're kind of out there on this and on that. And because you believe differently on some things than I do, I want you to know you're right. You're wrong and I'm right. I don't ever tell them they're right. You're wrong and I'm right. And because you don't believe just like me, I'm going to judge you as evil and heretical. That would be very easy to do. And there are some churches that do believe they are the only true church and the rest of us are confused at best and lost at worst. 
And as I said, at this age in my life, I'm coming to the conclusion I don't know all the answers. I'd like to think that I do. I want to convince you that I do, but I don't. And because of that, I'm willing to accept that the kingdom of Christ is more than just people like me. I read a great article this week. and In fact, I think I linked it in in our church blog. I hope you'll go and and find it and read it. An article about issue Christians. Issue Christians. What are issue Christians? Issue Christians are believers who somehow, usually due to the influence of a teacher, maybe a radio teacher, you know, there's this guy that's been telling everybody when Jesus is coming back for the last year and he keeps setting the dates and he keeps missing it. And there are people that follow that guy and they're just consumed with what he has to say about the return of Christ. There are issue believers that somebody has influenced them, a teacher or a preacher on TV or on the radio, maybe in a book, and they've gotten consumed with this one thing and it's gotten them out of balance and they gravitate toward a single issue that to them is paramount to all others. That's all they want to talk about is that one issue. And that issue then becomes their religion. And I've seen issues take control of the thinking of good Christian people to the point that it's all that matters to them and that if you don't agree with them, they'll tell you, you must be carnal or you must be a heretic. It's not that the issues that they chase after are bad things. They're usually good things. I mean, it's good to know what you believe about the return of Christ. That's a good thing to know. And there's a lot of other issues. And they're all, by themselves, they're they're pretty good. But what happens is they become their focal point. If you can imagine, envision it this way, their issue that, if you imagine a wheel, like a bicycle wheel, their issue that should be one of the spokes, you got lots of spokes in a bicycle, it should be one of the spokes, their issue becomes the hub. It becomes the central thing of everything they believe comes their focal point. They, they've allowed a stand on an issue to become more important than their personal walk with Christ, to become more important to reaching out to people different than them. We've seen issue Christians pop up and even in our church and, and leave our church because our elders have said, you know, they've come to our elders and said, you know, the church is not strong enough on this one thing and it seems to be all they want to talk about and our elders are, you know, these guys are committed to Christ committed to God's word, and they said, you know what? We're not going to get caught up in that. And, you know, in other words, if that, you want to make that a spoke on your wheel, that's okay, but we're not going to allow it to become what we're all about at Nags Head Church. We're not going to be consumed with that. Let me say emphatically that I believe it's healthy to have a biblical worldview on every aspect of life. I think you ought to know what the Bible has to say about the issues that are coming up in the next election. I really do. I think you ought, to ba- you ought to go to the polls and vote based upon what you know the Bible says. Because I think the Bible influences every aspect of our lives. You ought to know what the Bible says about all these different kinds of things, all these issues. You ought to know biblical principles that determine how you vote and how you educate your children. You ought to know the Bible, what the Bible says about how you're gifted to serve and that Jesus is coming back. But none of those issues and many others are in and of themselves bad, but each of them, again, is like a spoke in the wheel, not the wheel or the hub. And if they become the hub of the wheel, 
and we allow them to become dominant, then they simply become exactly what the Pharisees had. They become the traditions of the elders that blind eyes and keep us from seeing that really it's all about Jesus. That's who we should be about. And those issues will divide Christians and destroy churches, and I've seen that happen. And that's really the key to escaping the the trap of being religious, being focused on Jesus. That's also why some groups, there are some groups, getting back to the pastor and what he said a few weeks ago, there are some groups with whom we cannot fellowship. Why? Their understanding of Jesus and salvation that he brought is different in major ways from what we see in the scriptures. Maybe it's the addition of good works as a requirement for salvation. Maybe it's the worship of Mary or the prayer to saints. Maybe it's the addition of another book that is put on equal basis with the Bible. Maybe it's the denial of the Trinity. But those are all religious traditions that have been added to Christ by men. There was a fellow that I, that I got the chance to, to hear preach many times, got the chance to meet a couple decades, three decades ago. Old evangelist who was very popular back in the 30s and the 40s, man by the name of B.R. Lakin. It was on the radio, and you could hear him all over America preaching on the radio back in the days of radio. And, and he was once asked, probably asked more than one time, but he had a great answer. Once asked, if he, he, would you fellowship with this preacher? Will you fellowship with that denomination? And his answer had a lot of wisdom. I'll never forget his answer. And his answer was very simply this. He said, I'm a friend of the friends of Jesus. That makes it so simple that I can get it. I'm a friend of the friends of Jesus. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm not going to allow minor differences to become major points of division. But if you agree with what the Bible says about Jesus, about his virgin birth and his sinless life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, his ascension, if you believe what the Bible says about the gospel of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, I'll fellowship with that person. Look with me again at Matthew twelve thirty. that last verse we read. It's up on the screen. Jesus said, anyone who's not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So the point this morning, I think, is this. Would you simply say to Jesus, I'm with you. I'm on your team. I'll go where you go. I'll hang with those you hang with. I don't ever want to be religious. Would you pray with me? I thank you, Father, that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, included these confrontations that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people. I'm glad that, Lord, you saw fit to include those so that we could read those today and realize the difference between knowing you through your Son and having some sort of religion that's based on man-made traditions. Maybe this morning someone here today needs to say, I've been trusting in what men have come up with. I've not trusted in Christ and him alone. Maybe there's a Christian that's here today to say, I've been kind of focused on the spokes and not on the hub. 
and that, Lord, you change our hearts and change our minds. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.